ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It is Tuesday, the 30th of January. I'm Sally Sara coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Today, teacher shortages as students start the new school year. Governments urge to step up recruitment efforts. And ladies who lift, more women taking up strength training. You go into the gym and I'd say there's a like, decently even split of women to men and that's really nice to see. I'm not doing this to look a certain way, I'm doing this because this is a really cool thing to be doing and this is really, like this makes me feel good. First up today, torrential rain is causing havoc across Queensland's southeast, with homes and businesses swamped and some cars swept down streets. As floodwaters rise west of Brisbane, locals in the city's north are already cleaning up, caught by surprise as flash flooding hit in the middle of the night. Hundreds of millimetres of rain have been dumped in some areas, causing major damage. And authorities are warning that the emergency is not over yet. Stephanie Smale and Elizabeth Cramsey report. Bray Park residents are cleaning up after a long wet night north of Brisbane. There's evidence on fences and the walls of homes that floodwater came up about a metre, with some locals needing help to get out. Kate Glyde's whole street went under. We had cars floating down the road, garbage bins going everywhere. The water just came up so quickly that most people around here didn't get time. They woke up to being in water. People were generally not yelling, they were just dumbfounded. Couldn't believe standing in the street trying to work out what to do and how to get their belongings to safe ground as much as they could. As they scrape thick mud and debris into wheelie bins, Kate Glyde says there's frustration there wasn't more warning. I only just moved into the area and wasn't aware that this street would flood. Um, Knew that it was heavy rainfall, but there was definitely not enough warning for most. I mean, the houses near us have only just rebuilt five weeks ago and from three years ago. The pressure hoses are going at Samford, west of Brisbane, where more than 300 millimetres of rain was recorded in a few hours, pushing a wall of water through the local bowling club. Uh, fridges, freezers turned upside down, right on mowers uh, uh, turned over. All tables and chairs are covered in mud. The Bowls Club's former property manager, Chris Campbell, is telling reporter Elizabeth Cramsey about the damage. Everything. The office laden with soggy uh, records and laptops and you name it. Smashed the auto-sliding doors at the front of the building, uh, ripped up the fence, the surrounding fence, pulled seats out of the ground with concrete foundations and thrown them in the river. What is the plan to try and get the club cleaned up? First thing tomorrow morning, 7 o'clock, we've asked for a lot of members to come down. Another version, or our version, of the Mud Army. We're all 70s and 80s, so it's going to be a, a huge task. Van Grasso owns the cafe just down the road. Neither business is insured. The mud and the um, debris that has been backed up within our, on our deck... Um, I see the water has climbed quite significantly, which is causing us to have to wash the mud out. We're having to close our business for probably days to get this sorted and dried out. As the clean-up happens in some parts of the southeast, floodwaters are still rising in others. Jane Matthews owns a gift shop in the main street of Laidley in the Lockyer Valley that's been inundated. 
So at the moment, the floodwaters have peaked and they're running down the street. Yeah, the whole of Patrick Street, which is the main street, the water's flowing down there now. Did you have a chance to sandbag or make any preparations? Yes, yeah. So at 4.30 this morning, I received the emergency alerts saying that Laidley Town was expected to flood. I quickly jumped out of bed and got my five-year-old in the car and went to the shop and started moving things upstairs. So I was able to move everything out of the way. And is, so, the, water, is the water rising fast around you? Yeah, it's come up a lot since I was down here about five minutes ago. With so much rain still pouring into river and creek catchments, authorities are warning this flood emergency isn't over yet. Kevin Walsh is the Deputy Commissioner of Queensland Fire and Emergency Services. The whole of southeast Queensland is absolutely saturated, so when we get these quick, intense rainfall events, um, the water rises very quickly and people be- can become uh, caught unaware. So the Bureau was still predicting that rain periods over the next couple of days in southeast Queensland and that will bring an increased risk of flash flooding, so people have to be very aware. That's Kevin Walsh there, the Deputy Commissioner of Queensland Fire and Emergency Services, and that report was put together by Stephanie Smale and Elizabeth Cramsey. Well, school bags have been recovered from the back of cupboards and lunchboxes have been packed as schools reopen for the new year. Students are returning to the classroom in Victoria and the Northern Territory today. They've already gone back in Queensland, South Australia and the ACT. Even as students return, many schools are still trying to attract teachers to fill empty positions. Some say it could take years to find enough staff. Angus Randall reports. While many of us were enjoying a break over summer, Principal Anne-Marie Kleiman was scrambling to fill teacher positions. Today, she's heading back to the classroom at Tarnit College in Melbourne's west to fill the gaps. I'm teaching food tech. I'm a primary trained teacher. My strength areas were math and literacy and health and phys ed. I think it's probably fair to say that lucky I like to cook. She's advertised 35 roles since the middle of last year. Most received zero applications. As students return, there are still 10 positions left to fill. Five years ago, I would say we would have had 100 applicants. For one job. There are 800 teaching positions currently advertised on the Victorian Public Education website. The true number of unfilled positions will likely be even higher as schools give up on finding someone. That means thousands of students returning today won't have a permanent teacher. Teachers say retention is a challenge across the nation. Matthew Key is a teacher at Mount Gambier in South Australia's southeast. If we can come back and get to the heart of what teachers want to be doing, which is to be teaching, we should then be able to bring more people into the workforce and we can fix this problem over time. But there's certainly no magic bullet at the moment and it's really concerning where we're at. He says ultimately it's the students that suffer. It's when they don't have a reliable teacher, when they don't have a a consistent person um, in front of them in the classroom and then it's just not the the optimal conditions for any of our kids to be learning at all. South Australian public school teachers went on strike twice last year for better pay and conditions. Voting for a new enterprise agreement is underway. Jenny Marie Gorman is the state president of the Australian Education Union. She says teachers are being burdened with admin and data entry tasks that are far away from the reason they got into the profession. So there's a new phonics testing that has to be done for um, year one students. And that can take anywhere between 15, 20 minutes up to half an hour to do per student. You know, the data's needed, I guess, for the bigger picture, but teachers know where their students are at. And it's a lot of 
you know, collecting of data for data's sake. In the past 10 years, there's been a 12% drop in the number of people studying teaching. Governments are trying to reverse the slide. Victoria is covering the cost of degrees for those who go on to teach in public high schools, and the federal government is offering up to $40,000 in scholarships. Jason Clare is the federal education minister. He says the solution starts at university. Well, we've got about 80,000 people at uni right now studying teaching. That's good, but we know that only 50% will actually finish the degree and about another 20% will quit in the first three years as a teacher. So there's more that we have to do to fix the course at uni, make sure that teachers are given the practical skills they need to be ready to teach from day one, as well as extra support for teachers in their first couple of years when they're most likely to feel overwhelmed and quit the profession that for much of their life they've always wanted to do. Schools in Western Australia and New South Wales return later this week and Tasmanian students will be back next Tuesday. That's Angus Randall reporting there. As the nationwide crackdown on vaping intensifies, 13 tonnes of vapes have been confiscated by federal authorities at the border. It's the first large-scale seizure of vapes since tough new laws came into force at the beginning of the year, limiting their importation. And while the federal government argues that it shows the new regime is working, others are worried that it could cause the illegal trade to grow. Gavin Coote prepared this report. That's a lot of nicotine for a school kid. And you can see how it's marketed. It's yeah. kind of very bright. And, yeah. At a cargo examination site in Adelaide, Health Minister Mark Butler is inspecting a large haul of flavoured vapes that Border Force officials have seized. Not only is the import of vaping now illegal, it's also the wrong thing to do. I mean, this market is trying to recruit a new generation to nicotine. The two shipments weighing a combined 13 tonnes and valued at about $4.5 million have been detected under the new regime which came into force at the beginning of the year. It's now illegal to import disposable single-use vapes, regardless of whether or not they contain nicotine. These are the vapes that you'll see behind me that are being marketed to our kids. Uh, they are labelled and, and presented with colourful uh, packaging. They have bubble gum and other attractive flavours that are to particularly directed uh, at recruiting young children and teenagers to starting to use them. Uh, and this is the thing that we are determined to stamp out. The second stage of the national crackdown on vapes will kick in from March, with a ban on refillable non-therapeutic vapes, along with tougher rules around flavours and packaging. And while the laws are primarily aimed at tackling a public health problem, Mark Butler argues it'll have another important benefit. It's also choking off a market that is increasingly controlled by organised crime, by outlaw motorcycle gangs and other organised criminal gangs. This is effectively a market that acts as an ATM for organised criminals to fund their other criminal activities like drug trafficking, sex trafficking and more. And we're equally determined to choke off that source of funding to those criminal gangs for those criminal activities. To help enforce the new laws, the federal government's given Border Force and the Therapeutic Goods Administration extra resources, though some question whether law enforcement will be able to get on top of the illegal trade. The methods that they've used are so entrenched that they will develop ways to get around that and disguise their product as it comes through the border. Rowan Pike is a former federal police officer who helped set up the Border Force's tobacco strike force. He argues organised crime networks will thrive as long as demand for vapes continues. And of course the uh, extra resources to the border force are welcome um, and that will undoubtedly 
um, show a spike in seizures at the border. But really, uh, so the more you look, the more they will find. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're going to stop everything. And while there's a market for it, um, the smugglers will find a way to get their product to that market. States like New South Wales are beefing up their compliance efforts at the retail level. Will that help? Uh, yep, certainly any um, enforcement at the retail level, so at post-border, is is welcome because that's been um, sadly lacking up to this point. So, yeah, there must there needs to be an expectation from law enforcement um, that these products will get through the border and that there needs to be some sort of enforcement activity, a planned strategy um, post-border um, in order to counter it and, and cut the supply. That's former Federal Police Officer Rowan Pike there, ending that report from Gavin Coote. You are tuned in to The World Today. The White House says it's not looking for a war with Iran, but will do whatever it takes to defend its personnel. President Joe Biden is under pressure to come up with a decisive response after an Iran-backed drone attack killed three American soldiers in Jordan. It comes after two months of attacks on American targets in the Middle East by Iran-backed militia. David Sparks has more. The government of Jordan has condemned the strike against the US base on its territory, calling it an act of terrorism. But in the country's capital, Amman, these residents have little sympathy for the United States. Now America has revealed its true identity and announced to the whole world that it's the enemy of all Arab people, including the Palestinians. America is the one who started fighting the Arab people, all the Arab people, and the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank in particular. That hostility towards the United States will be on Joe Biden's mind as he plans his next move. The enemy drone hit a base known as Tower 22 on Sunday. It's in Jordan's northeastern corner near the borders with Syria and Iraq. Three Americans were killed and more than 40 wounded. An Iran-backed militia group based in Iraq has claimed responsibility and US Secretary of State Antony Blinken says there will be consequences. And the president's been crystal clear. We will respond decisively to any aggression. And we will hold responsible the people who attacked our troops. We'll do so at a time and a place of our choosing. For now, there's no indication of what that response will be, although the White House faces pressure at home to punish those who have killed American troops. NATO, which is the military alliance of North American and European nations, is worried about Iran's influence and its links to several militia groups in places like Gaza, Iraq, Yemen and Lebanon. Its secretary-general is Jens Stoltenberg. Of course, Iran is uh, responsible for destabilising the whole uh, region, uh, threatening stability and security in the Middle East. Um, uh, it is uh, repressive at home and aggressive abroad. Jens Stoltenberg also raised the growing relationship between Iran and Russia. Uh, Russia is more and more dependent on uh, drones uh, uh, from uh, Iran. They actually built a new factory in Russia uh, based on Iranian drone technology. And uh, uh, in return, Russia is providing advanced technology to, uh, to Iran. So it demonstrates how, uh, how uh, authoritarian regimes are now coming closer and closer. Ryan Crocker is a former American diplomat who has served as the US ambassador in Lebanon, Kuwait, Syria, Iraq and others. He says President Joe Biden faces a tough choice. Well, in principle, there are 
three broad types of responses he could make. One is against militia groups backed by Iran. One would be against Iranian assets in the region. And the third would be uh, an attack into uh, Iran itself. I don't think that is where he wants to go, the latter. Meanwhile, investigations are underway into how the enemy drone managed to reach the US base. It's been suggested an American drone was returning at the same time and defences were down. That's David Sparks reporting there. Well, after price falls, destocking and fears of drought, Australia's livestock markets are rebounding. Above average rainfall in many parts of eastern Australia has boosted confidence and returns. But a glut of frozen beef in parts of Asia, especially China, is creating an oversupply in some export markets. Simon Quilty is a meat and livestock analyst with Global Agri-Trends. Certainly they have. We've had a, a jump in prices across both the cattle and sheep meat sector throughout Australia on the back of the good rains that have been received, particularly on the eastern seaboard. For the moment, you know, shipments are good, but I've got to say we're shipping into markets that are truly challenged around the world. What do you mean by that? What's happening? Well, particularly across Asia, we've had very quiet, sluggish markets for almost 18 months. And as a result, we've got record volumes of imported meat, frozen meat, sitting in cold stores in China itself. How big are these inventories, particularly in China, compared to what we'd normally expect to see? Sally, they're sitting at about three times the normal average of import volumes. So at record levels in China and today, you know, those volumes are tending to go higher, not lower. The last December shipments are showing that. So how long can this meat stay frozen before it's a problem? Well, normally you'd like to have the meat move within six months or earlier, but we're finding that this meat is there for prolonged periods. You know, at 12 months of age, it then starts to get problematic. Now, often still very good quality, but in the perception of the consumer, in the perception of those that are financing, that the 12-month period is just simply too long. Simon, back home here in Australia, we're having inquiries into supermarket pricing Is it right to have a look at that? Are there big gaps between what primary producers are being paid and what consumers are having to pay at the checkout? There's no doubt that particularly the last half of last year, those gaps were significant. Sally, as we move forward and as prices improve today, I think those gaps are getting much, much less. So there's been a moment in time here without doubt that the supermarkets have enjoyed probably very healthy margins. But I think, Sally, that they will be short-lived as we move forward. How much variation has there been in prices in the past 12 months when particularly people were seeing forecasts of El Nino, they were worried, a lot of people were offloading stock, and now a lot of areas have had big amounts of rain? Look, we've had a dramatic rise you know, we saw the low in the market last October and we've had a rebound, a very healthy rebound in pricing. And unfortunately, when we saw that destocking in October, November, that decision making was made on not just the talk of El Nino, but because we had the driest August, September, October in 120 years on the eastern seaboard. People were making decisions 
on what they saw in the paddock because it truly was impacting their day-to-day, I guess, production process where the drought was truly bad. If prices do go up, won't the supermarkets just simply pass those on to consumers? Sally, I think that there will be challenges to do that with high cost of living today. There have been periods in the past when livestock prices get to very high levels where margins within supermarkets are truly challenged. And I think that period is not far away again. That's Simon Quilty there, meat and livestock analyst with Global Agri-Trends. Well, finally today, as the new year gets underway, some people have made resolutions to spend more time at the gym. And data shows that many women are picking up weights and flexing their muscles in increasing numbers. Strength-based exercise is no longer a male-dominated pursuit. More and more women are discovering the benefits of stronger muscles and bones. And as Mary Lloyd reports, that's changing the look of some weight studios. (laughs) At first, Tallulah Clarkson didn't feel entirely comfortable lifting weights at her gym. Very intimidating initially because there are all these like super muscular men who are walking around you like, oh my God, like I look nothing like that. She started out focusing on cardio, running, treadmills and cycling, but then her interest in strength-based exercise grew. In the two years since she started lifting weights regularly, the environment has changed a lot. Now you go into the gym and I'd say there's a like decently even split of women to men and that's really nice to see. When she first picked up a barbell, the then 16-year-old could only deadlift 20 kilograms. She's now 18 and... I can deadlift 120 kilos at the moment. Ama Brown coaches powerlifting. He's noticed a growing number of women keen on weightlifting. Over the last two years that I've been here, more and more females come in. So, yeah, huge change there. Far is over Bethany. Let's go, Bethany. Punch straight up. He's seen a difference at powerlifting contests as well. The last competition I went to a few weeks ago, there was about an even 50-50 split uh, in the competition, 30 women, 30 males, whereas in the past it would be somewhere close to like five females, 25 males. Data from the Australian Sports Commission reveals a rapid transformation. Between 2016 and 2022, the number of men taking part in amateur weightlifting almost tripled. For women, it increased by five times. In those seven years, women's participation in CrossFit, a high-intensity strength and conditioning workout, doubled, while the number of men taking part grew by just 10%. What hasn't grown is our understanding of how women should train. Emma Brown says women have certain natural advantages. They can train harder. Uh, They just recover a lot faster, to be honest. So they recover a lot faster, they can do more work. Uh, So generally, I make them do more than I would the average male. But exercise scientist Dr Mandy Hagstrom from the University of New South Wales says the research is unclear. So we know that our physiology is different. We have different oxygen perfusion, different anatomy, hearts and lungs are different. You know, we have different fibre typing in our muscles. We fatigue differently. So there are all sorts of physiological reasons why we might need to train differently from, from the men. But to be honest, at the moment, the data simply isn't there to recommend that. 
This knowledge gap could be doing women a disservice because strength training is so important as we age. It makes your joints and bones stronger and that might mean fewer broken bones later in life. Strength training is the gold standard for preservation and maintenance of, of bone mineral density. Dr Mandy Hagstrom hopes the growing acceptance of weight training among women will help drive research into the most effective ways for women to build strength. Muscles are beautiful and I, I think you know, the change in culture around the acceptability of females with athletic physiques is fantastic. Many are also finding it empowering. Women like Tallulah Clarkson say they're rejecting the idea that exercise is simply a way to lose weight or look good. I'm not doing this to look a certain way, I'm doing this because this is a really cool thing to be doing and this is really, like, this makes me feel good. That's weightlifter Tallulah Clarkson ending that report from Mary Lloyd. And that's all from the World Today team. Thanks for your company. I'm Sally Sara. Stay safe. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Just before Christmas, journalist Antoinette Latouf was filling in on ABC Radio in Sydney when three days into a five-day contract, she was told, don't come back. She's now accusing the ABC of unlawful dismissal. So what happens when social media collides with the workplace? Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.